Okay, uh, I, I'm going to need some kind of a marker here. I bet there are some somewhere. Yeah, thank you. I'm always just writing. We're going to talk about uh, the four Gospels. Four Gospels from a Jewish perspective. <clears throat> there are four levels of interpretation in Jewish thinking. And when I teach the Gospels, I always start with that when I get to the Gospels. Uh, there's some stuff um, that happens in between the Old Testament and New Testament. And I don't know how much you've read about that area, but that's called the intertestamental period. The intertestamental period is about 400 years. Malachi finished up the Old Testament about 404 B.C., and that was the end of the Old Testament. That was the end of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, the Jews refer to the Old Testament as the Hebrew Bible. And when Malachi drew that to a conclusion, there's no more revelation from God for about 400 years. John the Baptist is born uh, B.C. about 5 and Jesus is also born about 5 B.C. We know this because there was only one celestial phenomenon, only one unique appearance of a star, and this appearance uh, between 10 B.C. and 10 A.D., there was only one appearance of a star, and the Chinese in their archives keep lists of when these things occur. And so in their archives, they say that a comet appeared in 5 B.C. Uh, you know, John was probably born uh, in either late 4 B.C. or very early 5 B.C., John the Baptist. J the B, I call him, middle name is the, the. you probably knew that. Uh, and then Jesus is born probably in September or October 5 B.C. Uh, this, this star, this comet was discovered by the Chinese and they followed it for 70 days. And in their annals, they, they spell this all out. And they said the farther it went, the more the tail went up away from the earth. And then that star, as it moved for 70 days, how many of you have seen a comet? How many of you rode one? There was a, remember there was a group of people, a bunch of crazies out in California that were going to ride the comet, and since the comet missed them, they said, well, we'll have to commit suicide, so we, you know, uh, sad. But, uh, um, this comet's tail kept going higher and higher, the Chinese say, in their annals. And then it crossed over Persia, the Middle East, what we call today Iraq and Iran. And there are 12 cities there that claim that the wise men, or a wise man, came from their city. Uh, almost certainly, we have no idea how many wise men there were. These were called Magi in Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's the only one that mentions the Magi. None of the other Gospels talk about it. Uh, each of the Gospels is unique. Uh, when you compare them, you'll find that there are a lot of differences, but there are also a lot of similarities. Uh, when, we, when we talk about Matthew, Mark, and Luke being similar, 
There's a term that's used by the scholars for that. It's called the synoptic problem. These three Gospels are called the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic, S-Y-N-O-P-T-I-C. It means to see things alike, which they do. And then John writes a generation later. And so he sees things from a theological point of view completely differently. Anyway, at the end of the 400 years of silence, the angel Gabriel, according to Luke, and Luke's the only one that tells us this story, the angel Gabriel appeared to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, who had been chosen by Lot. They cast lots. Proverbs says the lot is cast into the lap of the priest, but the decision is up to the Lord. And so when they roll the bones, um, they choose a tribe, and then they slowly choose down to the, through the Levitical priesthood to one particular Levitical priest. And you remember, you remember the story in Luke? Zechariah? Zechariah married Elizabeth. You remember those names? Um, Elizabeth means my God keeps his word. Zechariah means the Lord remembers. And it's interesting that the Lord remembers and the Lord keeps his word are the father and mother of John the Baptist. God is keeping his word. He's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And Malachi, right at the end of his book, we call him the Italian prophet, Malachi. Uh, But Malachi, right at the end of his book, says in chapter 3, verse 1, that Elijah has to come first. And Jesus, in Matthew Matthew 11, says... John the Baptist was the Elijah who was to come. In other words, he and Elijah are very much alike. They come in the same spirit. They're led the same way. So, John the Baptist has Gabriel's, John the Baptist's dad has Gabriel appear to him. Remember the story? Uh, He can't speak. Because he didn't believe the angel, and the angel said, you and your wife are going to have a child. God's got a sense of humor. He does this to old people. You know, he did it to Abraham and Sarah. He did it to Isaac and Rebecca. And he did it to Jacob and Esau. I mean, to uh, 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 Jacob and Rachel, not Jacob and Esau. That would be... <laughs> That would be, you know, that'd be like saying Adam and Steve were in the garden, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's an updated version. Uh, sad, isn't it? But anyway, uh, he appears to him. Zechariah doesn't believe the word. How can I know that this is true? He said, well, you're not going to be able to talk for nine months. That's how you'll know it's true. So he came out, and the people were wondering what took him so long in there, because all he had to do as a priest in the temple, was go in and make sure that the, there was enough incense on the incense altar to keep uh, smoldering. That's all he had to do. Uh, occasionally, once a month, they would replace the showbread, the table of, uh, of uh, the bread of the presence. But basically, that's all you got to do. If you're a priest, you go in and you pray and you do that and then you come back out. But he was in there a long time apparently talking to that angel and the people were wondering what was going on. When they came out, of course when he came out, they asked him what happened and he couldn't tell them. And so this went on for nine months. And they knew he had seen a vision. And when John's born, you remember they said, uh, well we should call him Zechariah after his dad. And his mom, Elizabeth, said, no, no, Uh, he's to be called John. The angel told us the name. John means gift of God, you know. 
And so when they went to Zechariah, said, hey, she said we should call him John. What do you think? And they gave him a tablet, and he started to write, and then he blurted out, he shall be called John, because that's what the angel told him. So John the Baptist is born early 5 B.C. or perhaps late 4 B.C. Six months later, Jesus is born. During the, the leading up to the birth of Jesus, here's this comet coming across the sky. Its tail keeps going farther and farther away from the earth as it travels. The Chinese followed it for 70 days, and then the Persians saw it, and somehow they knew that this star meant a king was born. And I think they may know this from something way back in the book of Numbers where the fourth oracle of Balaam, the prophet, the guy who was corrected by a donkey, remember that? You know you got a problem when a donkey corrects you. Uh, and this, this was a believing true prophet but he was in it for the money. And he gave bad advice to a king. He did some pretty bad things. But every time he opened his mouth to curse Israel, blessing came out. And the fourth oracle, he says, a star will arise out of Jacob, and the ruler's staff will never depart from between his feet. In other words, the star means a king is born, a ruler is born, and he will rule forever. And so when these Persians saw this, they got so excited. They put together an entourage, uh, camels and all that, and they made the trip. And we don't know how many there were. We know there were three gifts. So there is a traditional bunch of names that they came up with for these three wise men. But we don't even know that there were three. Uh, there's one tradition that says 12 and one that says four. But then the one that stuck with Christianity the most is three. Question. No, the Persians conquered Babylon while while Israel was there captive. That's another possibility. Uh, Daniel might have taught them that. But Daniel never talks about the star. But he does give the exact date of the Messiah's birth. And he says the Messiah's ministry will be three and a half years. The way he says it is, the Messiah will be cut off in the middle of the week, Daniel chapter 9, the prophecy of the 70 weeks. He tells the date of his birth, the date of his death, uh, the length of his ministry, three and a half years. Three and a half is a number. If you remember studying Revelation with me and Genesis with me, I know you've slept since then. I can't even remember your names, you know. So, I mean, if you remember anything about the numbers, if you don't, I'll send that information to you uh, out, of my, out of my second book. Uh, but the numbers all have meanings in Scripture. And three and a half is a number for tragedy. Uh, do you remember that uh, uh, Elijah told King Ahab, it's not going to rain till I say so, and then he disappeared. And for three and a half years, it didn't rain. Three and a half years. You know, sometimes we get a couple months or something, but three and a half years, uh, it was a tragedy. And it was an amazing experience. Uh, the Old Testament's filled with that. So Jesus, these magi follow the comet also. And when they get to Herod, they say, we saw his star, we know a king is born. And, of course, Herod's all upset about that because he wants to kill any other king. He's already killed a brother. He, he killed uh, his own father. He killed one of his sons who he thought was trying to take his throne. So, he, you know, he's not averse to killing people. And uh, so he told the Magi, you go find him, and when you find him, come back and tell me. And uh, so they left. And they went to the place. And, by the way, that, by that time, with the, with the comet's tail going upward... It would be like a finger pointing down right where Jesus was born. And uh, they had thought it was Jerusalem. Jerusalem and Bethlehem about two miles apart. And they found the baby uh, 
in Jerusalem. And only Matthew tells this story. And we'll talk about why that happens later on. But this information here that Luke gives us is incredible. And Luke gives us the dates of Jesus' birth and so on because Luke names five rulers who were in who were ruling at the time of Jesus' birth. And we can figure out one of them, the most important one, is a guy by the name of Quirinius. Q-U, spell. Q-U-I-R-I-N-I-U-S. Quirinius. He was governor of Syria. He was governor of Syria twice. He was governor of Syria A.D. 14 through 16, but also B.C., uh, that's a C, uh, 6 to, let's see, it was 8 to 4 B.C. And so Jesus, the Messiah, had to be born under Quirinius, because Luke says so. So he had to be born sometime right in there. And it turns out he was born 5 B.C., so calendar's off 5. I don't suppose that's, you know, they're going to rush right out and change the calendar, so this is the year 2016, but but it is. Okay, so, within this 400 years, there's a bunch of stuff that happened that led up to the birth of Christ. And one of those things was Alexander the Great. In that 400 years... At about 330 B.C., Alexander the Great, who started out from Macedon, Macedonia, uh, his dad was Philip, the king of Macedon, and Macedonia is right up north of Greece, and so he was he loved Greek, he loved the Greek language, Alexander did, and he raised an army and conquered, he attacked the Persian Empire. And he had a new way of fighting, and I'm not going to go into that, but it's called the phalanx, and you can look it up. Shields that hook together, side by side, and 16-foot spears. So when they, the Persians attacked Alexander with elephants, he just had his men put the butt of the spear in the ground, the elephants would run up on the spear, die, and the phalanx, it was called, would move off to the side and go around the elephant and just keep advancing. Uh, he had about uh, 140,000 soldiers when he fought at the Battle of Arbella, and the Persian army was over a million. But he had a better way of fighting. It was like taking a tank, you know, to guys with bows and arrows. Uh, they couldn't handle the phalanx. All these shields hooked together, and guys out in the middle hurling stones, you know, uh, with uh, with uh, Shot, slingshots and uh, shooting arrows out in the middle of this thing, this walled phalanx. Sixteen men in that phalanx. Uh, and they were covered and they were protected and they could conquer anybody. And they did. They conquered the Persian Empire, even destroyed his, his immortals. Uh, the king of Persia had a group that he called the immortals who were his bodyguard. And uh, he destroyed them also and took the king captive. And so Alexander, every city he took, he left behind grammar teachers. People to teach Greek. And so everybody in the world by that time, everybody in the known world in the Roman Empire spoke Greek. After Alexander, I'm skipping a lot, but after Alexander, the Romans came, and the Romans began conquering. And uh, the Romans entered Jerusalem. Roman general Pompey entered Jerusalem in 63 B.C. Alexander was about 330 B.C. India to the ocean and conquered everything he saw and left Greek teachers in every city, and everybody was required by law to learn Greek. Alexander conquered all the cities in the known world except Jerusalem. Because the people of Jerusalem knew Alexander was coming. 
They'd read the prophets. They read Daniel. And Daniel had predicted that this man would come and that his image would be a ram. And Alexander used, in fact, Daniel calls him a ram that butts in four different directions. Four is the universal number. In other words, he's going to conquer the world, the the known world. And so this ram, remember the big brass ram's heads that they would put on a tree trunk and then slam that tree trunk up against the gates of a city to break it open? They called a battering ram for a reason because there was a ram's head, big brass ram's head up on the front of that thing. Well, uh, Greek was spoken in the whole world, and then Rome spread, and Rome conquered everybody, and Rome was tolerant. They left the Greeks in place. They, everybody learned to speak Greek. Uh, the Romans also learned to speak Greek. Uh, the Romans uh, allowed anybody to worship whatever god they wanted to. They themselves had confiscated the Greek pantheon. They worshipped the Greek gods. And so they weren't disturbed by the Jews or the you know anybody back there worshiping the one God. Uh, so by the time you get to the New Testament era, Jesus grew up. And by the time he was 30 years old, Luke says he came and was baptized in the Jordan by John at the age of 30. That would make it 25 A.D. And then Jesus' ministry was three and a half years. So he would have died in the spring, you know, Passover, which we just went through, Easter. The reason Easter bounces around on the catalog, on the calendar, is because Easter is based on the, the Passover on the lunar calendar. And so Jesus is the Passover lamb for us, for Christians. And uh, by the way, uh, when the sun went out at noon and Jesus was dying on the cross, it was not an eclipse. It can't be, because when you have the Passover, the moon has to be over here and the sun is off here, because you have to have a full moon. And the only way you can get an eclipse is to have the moon move in between the earth and the sun. So those three hours that Jesus was on the cross, the brightest time of the day from noon to three, was not an an eclipse. The sun just went out. It can't be explained uh, without a miracle. So Jesus dies about, depending on when Easter was that year, about 29 A.D., the spring of 29 A.D. Nobody wrote anything. New Testament was not written. And so the apostles were still there preaching and teaching. And as they got older, about in the 60s, these guys wrote in the 60s, probably mid to late 60s, uh, these three Gospels were written. They began to realize we're being killed off. You know, disciples, all of them were being killed. Uh, Matthew was stoned to death in Jerusalem. Uh, You know that Peter, later on, Peter is the source of Mark's gospel. The early church says that Peter asked Mark to come to Rome and write down his sermons. And so the gospel of Mark is the shortest, simplest, easiest of the New Testament. The easiest of the gospels. It starts off, it doesn't say anything about the birth of Jesus. It's completely unique. And it ends with the empty tomb and doesn't even say anything beyond that. Some scholars say they think Peter was arrested at that point. That Christianity had become an illegal religion by that point. Under Nero. And Nero was the first one to persecute Christians. By the way, as I go, if you have questions, I'm sure open to to discussing any questions you have or comments. (laughs) 
some of you I know are students of the Word, and you'll have some things to offer. So anyway, I think Mark was probably written up in Rome, because according to the early church, Mark made the trip to Rome because Peter asked him to come. Mark wrote down Peter's sermons up in Rome. We know Peter was in Rome. Uh, First Clement, who wrote the same time John did, about 90 to 95 A.D. Uh, First Clement, Clement of Rome, uh, writes that uh, both Peter and Paul uh, had been martyred in Rome. And so we know we have historical proof there that Peter had been in Rome. And, of course, the early church, several places, talks about Peter being in Rome. And it's interesting, when Peter was in Rome, he wrote 1 Peter. And he says, all of us in Babylon greet you. Remember, Babylon was the, the country that attacked and destroyed Jerusalem in about 586 B.C., and so they're going to, they see that Rome is going to build up to do the same thing to Jerusalem again. And so they're calling Rome Babylon already uh, by the time Peter wrote in the 60s. Probably Peter, First Peter was written probably in the middle 60s. And then Second Peter was actually written by Peter himself a little bit later. First uh, Peter was written by Silas. You can tell if you read the fifth chapter, uh, 1 Peter 5.12 says, I have written you briefly through Silas, or Silvanus, he calls him, which is the longer uh, name for Silas. Okay, so we come up to the time these guys start writing. Now, Paul has already written 1st, 2nd Corinthians, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians. He's written several things before these Gospels were written. Paul's the first one to write down what the Gospel is. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. I I pass on to you what I received, that Jesus Christ died according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that on the third day He arose according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared and He lists the appearances of Christ. And he wrote that, 1 Corinthians, in about 50 or 51. So some of the earliest writing was done by Paul before these other guys wrote. And uh, Paul presents the gospel right there. Who's the one unbeliever that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection? How many days did he stay on earth showing himself to be alive after his resurrection? Forty. That's a good guess. And it's correct because 40, 40 is a universal sufficient number. Four is a universal number times ten, which is the sufficient number. And so, yeah, 40 days he showed himself to be alive. Which gospel tells about the ascension? That Jesus went up into heaven right in front of the eyes of the apostles. One guy tells it, and he tells it in two places. The end of Luke and the beginning of Acts. Luke wrote Luke and Acts. Book one, book two. And he's the only guy that tells us about the ascension. We wouldn't even know that Jesus ascended into heaven if it wasn't for Luke. And Luke was a historian. And Luke was a doctor. And so he's meticulous about his dating. He's meticulous about all the stuff he writes down. He interviewed people. He talked to Mary, the mother of Jesus. He talked to the other disciples. He traveled with Paul in the book of Acts. It's called the we sections in the book of Acts. We went here and we went here. Uh, So he was traveling with Paul part of the time. And he ends up being the only one that stayed with Paul in his first incarceration in Rome when he was in a private house, chained between four Roman guards. He He had appealed to Caesar because he had the Roman citizenship. He had the right to appear before Caesar. And he did that to save his own tail. Because the Jews were trying to kill him, and they had taken an oath not to eat or drink anything until they killed him. And so he told the Roman centurion, I, I want to go see Caesar. And so the Romans were responsible for him then, and they protected him from those Jews that were trying to kill him. And I could 
No, Luke was not an eyewitness. Right. Probably. Uh, most of what he wrote was from Paul. Uh, Paul would have had a major influence on him, I'm sure. But he also wrote the book of Acts. And so, you know, in there, he is with Paul. But Luke, at the beginning of Luke's gospel, the first four verses, he does a historical introduction. He shows that he is a meticulous historian. And he says, many have written gospels, but I'm writing this to you, Theophilus. The guy's name was Theophilus that he was writing to. Did I tell you they almost named me Theophilus? He did. They saw me and they said, that's Theophilus' baby I've ever seen. <laughs> that's not true. That didn't happen. <clears throat> when I was born, they slapped my mother. But no. Um, so, so he says, most excellent Theophilus, he calls him in the book of Acts. So most scholars say most excellent is a, is a title for a Roman official. So Luke writes for a high-level Roman official. And he writes on a higher level than Mark. Mark's much simpler. And Mark is Peter's sermon. Here's a fisherman in Rome, preaching to the Romans, probably in Greek, because, you know, Paul, when he did his missionary journeys, he never went anywhere. He went to so many different countries, but he never went anywhere where Greek was not spoken. He didn't have to go someplace and learn a language, because everybody already knew Greek. And we know he spoke Greek, Syriac, Latin, Aramaic, and Hebrew. In the book of Acts, he speaks in Hebrew, in front of a tribe of a bunch of Jews who are trying to kill him, and they are dead silent because they're used to hearing the scriptures read in Hebrew. But he was a he was a Pharisee. Paul was brilliant, and I think God chose him because he could straddle both cultures, Jewish and all the Gentile cultures. So Peter gives his gospel to Mark. Luke gets his mainly from Paul. Though he, his gospel was, he says, I interviewed eyewitnesses of the word. So he talked to people who really knew, who were there. Matthew's a little bit different. Matthew was with Jesus. You remember what his other name was, right? Levi. He was a Jew, and he was probably a priest of the Levitical priesthood. And so Matthew writes on a different level. Uh, Matthew knows how to do what they called tachigraphy back then. Today we call it shorthand. Uh, he knew how to keep notes. And he probably took notes of everything Jesus said. And that's how Matthew is able to have what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Chapters 5, 6, and 7. No other gospel has a Sermon on the Mount. There are snatches of it here and there in Luke and Mark on the plain, but the Sermon on the Mount is all one thing in Matthew, only Matthew. And Matthew's gospel is, is set up really uniquely. It's a series of events and teaching. Events and teaching. And it's like that five times. It's set up in a, in a series of Things he does, and then things he says. Things Jesus does, things he says. Five times. Probably because when Matthew was written, the authors were trying to make Matthew like the Torah, like the law, the Old Testament law. Five books of Moses, five sections of Matthew. So the Jews could connect with that. Matthew wrote, For the Jews. Mark wrote, for the Romans. Luke wrote, for a Roman official. And it became, the repository of all the scriptures became Rome because the two apostles, Peter and Paul, two of the greatest, and Mark and Luke did much of their writing there in Rome. All right, let me back up and talk about these from a different perspective. These four Gospels. The Jews, the number four, you remember, is a universal number. And I think the reason God chose four men to write four Gospels. Uh, 
he chose them to write four Gospels is because there are four levels of interpretation in these four Gospels. The Jews have four levels of interpretation. Let me explain what they are. The first one is called Mishnah. Mishnah means to repeat. I'll send a paper to Harold and he can run copies of it. It's called a a Jewish look at the four Gospels. Uh, Four Hebrew levels of interpretation. Mishnah means to repeat. If a a ditch digger who's a Jew wants to know what to do, he goes to the rabbi and says, what do I do on this holiday? The rabbi says, well, you offer such and such a sacrifice. And you say such and such a prayer. And so he goes and does that and goes back to work. He wants to obey, but he's not going to think about what he's doing. He's just repeating what he was told to do. So Mishnah means to repeat. Mark is like a Mishnah. It's very simple, uh, very detailed. When you look at, uh, for example, the woman who uh, has the issue of blood, Mark has more detail on that story than anybody else, more even than Luke. Because he was, Peter was there. Peter witnessed this. And so you have some detail, but mainly it's just repeating what you were told to do and then going back to work. The second level of interpretation would be Luke, and this is called a Gemara. Gemara means to complete. Luke is the most complete of all the Gospels. He doesn't know some of the information that some of the other guys know, some of the other Gospels know. But he interviewed people. He was not an eyewitness, but he interviewed eyewitnesses. And he did an amazing historical job. He's the only one that tells all the details. He's the guy that tells about the shepherds and the angels at the birth of Christ. Now, he's the one that says he'll be wrapped in swaddling clothes. He'll be lying in a manger. Details that only Luke has. All the information about the birth of John the Baptist, only Luke has that. Because Luke is complete. Okay? The third level is Matthew, and this would be called a midrash by the Jews, or drosh. And this word means to thresh. To thresh grain. Remember how they threshed grain? They ran a a wooden sledge back and forth across the threshing floor and crushed the grain. And then they took a willowing fork and they put it underneath and they raised it up, a winnowing fork, and they winnowed that. And the wind would blow the chaff away and the good grain would fall to the ground. So Midrash is to thresh the grain until you find the kernel you want. Okay? So in other words, it's very particular. You want to find a particular kernel of truth. And so you present this kernel. I'll give you an example. Turn to Matthew 1. And I think it's verse 21. I'm sorry, it's uh, 23. He's talking about Mary giving birth to a son. We'll give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then verse 23, verse 22 says... All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, if you go back in the Old Testament and you find the place where Emmanuel and the virgin are mentioned, you'll go back to Isaiah 
7.14. But the problem here is that Matthew is quoting only the LXX, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Matthew is not quoting Hebrew at all. Matthew himself was a priest and a Jew and would have known Hebrew. But his book is written in Greek and refers almost, almost exclusively to the Greek Old Testament instead of the Hebrew. There are a couple places where he refers to Hebrew. But generally it's the Greek. And I went back and looked at Isaiah 7.14 and I read all that context because that's what every all the cross-references say. Look at Isaiah 7.14. The problem is Matthew has taken this whole verse out of context. The context has nothing to do with the Messiah at all. I mean, you read the whole thing. It's talking about the northern kingdom of Israel and the Syrians in league together attacking Jerusalem. And Ahaz the king is trembling in his boots. He's terrified. Trembling in his sandals. And Ahaz is not a believer. And so Isaiah goes to him. Isaiah is the, is the prophet to the kings of Jerusalem. He goes to Ahaz. And he says, Ahaz, uh, ask a sign of the Lord your God. I don't care if it's as high as heaven or as low as, as hell. You ask a sign and I'll do it. The Lord will do it. Now, he, you know, if I was asked that, I'd say I'd like to talk to my mom and dad again. I'd like to sit down and have a cup of coffee with my mom and dad. That would be incredible. Uh, my aunt just died this week. She was 95, coming up on 96. Her older brother died earlier this year. He was 106. Uncle Art. Uh, you know... Uh, you may have to put up with me for a while. I don't know. But, but the amazing thing is that I see all these people dying around me. Here is Isaiah 7.14. He tells, he tells Ahaz, stop being afraid. Guard yourself. And he says, give me a sign. Man, wouldn't it be great to be able to ask? What would you ask? You know, if somebody said... God will do whatever you want Him to do. I don't care if it's as high as heaven or as low as hell. Ask. What would you want? See, Ahaz is such a hypocrite. He says, oh, I I won't put the Lord to the test, mainly because he did not believe Him. And so Isaiah responds by saying, okay, these two kingdoms that you're afraid of right now are both going to wilt and die away before this young woman here who is pregnant has her child get old enough to know the difference between good and evil. In other words, he says, this young woman who is pregnant will bear a child and his name will be Emmanuel. And every time you hear her call, Emmanuel, God with us, God's with us, you'll remember that these two kingdoms are going to be destroyed before that kid's old enough to know the difference between good and evil. That's what the whole thing means in Isaiah. So how, does, how can he just take this out of context and didn't quote the Hebrew, the Hebrew word means young woman. He quoted the Greek Old Testament, the Greek word parthenon, parthenos, which means virgin. He didn't quote the Hebrew Bible, but the Greek Bible. Because Jesus was born of a virgin, and for him, if you find the word virgin in the text, not the Hebrew, but the Greek, the translation, then that proves your argument. See, Midrashic scholars, like Matthew, 
All you got to do is find the word in the text, and that, that, that settles it. Boy, it doesn't work for us. If you get out and preach like that, you know, uh, uh, Paul was on board the ship, and they threw off four anchors, and the first anchor is love, and the second anchor is faith. You know I mean? It's just making stuff up. You know, that's what it appears to be to us because we think in terms of Greek logic. But he is thinking in terms of the third level of communication, the third level of interpretation of the Jews. And that level is called Midrash or Drosh. And it's almost like saying, come to paradise with me and let me show you a word that means something incredible. And he's a rabbi, so he would say, every word has 70 meanings, and every letter has seven meanings. And that's how these priests thought. And their view, if it's in the Bible, if I can show you the word in the Bible, that proves my argument. So Jesus is born of a virgin. See, there it is. There's the word virgin. Not only that, he is God with us. He happens to fulfill the kid's name, too. See? So both of those words, Matthew sees. And since Jesus was born of a virgin, Matthew wants to find a scripture that has the word virgin. And so he does it back there. Now, that's not the only place he does this kind of stuff. Look over second chapter of Matthew. Last verse, second chapter. Now, this is, this is the fourth dream Joseph had. Joseph had four dreams. The first one is God telling him to marry Mary. The second one is telling him to get out of Dodge because Herod's going to kill all the babies. The third one is, okay, Herod's dead, you can go back. But when they get close to Bethlehem, an angel comes to him at night and says, Herod's brother's reigning, so you don't want to go there. Go back to Nazareth. And so when he gets to Nazareth, so was fulfilled. You see it there at the end of chapter 2? So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, I, I study the Bible a lot. And I went back and looked for that in the prophets. And it's not in there. And I looked and looked. And finally one day, I found, not in the English, not the word Nazarene in English, but the Hebrew word, Natser, which means branch, in Isaiah 11.1. Isaiah 11.1 says, a branch will grow out of the stump of Jesse, and it will bear fruit from his roots. Jesse, who was Jesse? David's father. So the branch that grows out of Jesse is a Davidic king who is to come. All the Jewish commentaries on this passage say this is King Messiah. And he is called the Natsar. The branch, that's what Nazareth means. It means the branch. Natsar is the root word for Nazareth. And so when he, he sees this back there in Isaiah, I think Matthew must have really studied Isaiah, here's a word that proves something to him again. Jesus will be called a Natsar, and he is. Uh, have you ever studied the word branch throughout the Old Testament? If you read in your Bibles, you'll notice it's capitalized several places. Matthew or Isaiah talks about it four times, Jeremiah two times, and Zechariah two times. The prophets refer to him as the branch. Zechariah even tells us his name is going to be Jesus. The branch's name will be Jesus. And of course, Jesus in Hebrew is Yeshua, which is Joshua. And uh, Zechariah tells us that's, that's his name. And it also tells us he is prophet, priest, and king. And he will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom 
forever. There's some amazing things, folks, back in the Old Testament that predict Jesus. And just this one word here, Matthew doesn't say where it is. He doesn't say it's as in Isaiah the prophet. He just says, as it says in the prophets, kind of generally, you know. So you go back and you find this word. It's right there in, coming out of Jesse. Image after image of the Messiah in the Old Testament. And Matthew knew them all. And he knew all the symbolism of the priesthood. He knew what everything stood for in the temple, in the tabernacle, all the details of it, all the measurements of it. Why is it so important that everything has to follow the measurements that God says? In the Hebrew thinking, when you measure something, you're setting it apart as holy. And so Noah built the ark exactly the size God told him to. Moses built the ark of the covenant exactly the size God told him to. Everything, if you measure it properly, it's set apart as holy if God tells you how to do it. So these three levels are just fascinating. Mark is so easy. He just repeats Peter's sermons. It's so easy to read. Almost no parables. There are only four parables in Mark, and every one of them is about seeds and gardening. You know, it's written for servants. Mark himself was a servant in Jerusalem, a servant of a Roman soldier, it looks like. And you read uh, the story of um, a young man who gets up wrapped in a sheet. Any of you remember that story? And soldiers tried to arrest him, and they pulled the sheet off him, and he fled naked. First streaker mentioned back there in the Bible. Mark. And then Luke has all this detail. Luke has about 36 parables. So many teachings of Jesus. Matthew also has about the same number of parables. He has some unique ones. And Luke has some unique ones. I'm just so glad that Luke wrote because we wouldn't have the prodigal son. We wouldn't have the Good Samaritan if it weren't for Luke. He dug it out with his research and put it on paper. And the genius, think about the ability of Jesus to make up a story like that about the prodigal son. You know why he told that story? Because the Pharisees had said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus says, yes, yes. And if you'll come in, yes, I'll receive you too. The older brother. Luke's incredible. But Matthew is on a different level. Matthew's higher level. Here's my opinion about Matthew. It used to really bother me. Here's a Hebrew scholar that does everything in Greek. Even uses the Greek Hebrew the Greek Bible instead of the Hebrew Bible. I finally figured out why. He was stoned to death before he was able to complete his gospel. But he had all these notes. And many scholars believe that Greek Jews took Matthew's notes, went up into Syria to get out of the of the persecution, and wrote down Matthew's gospel just the way Matthew's notes had it. See, I don't think Matthew actually wrote the gospel as it stands today, but I think he wrote the foundation for it. And I think his students, who were Greek Jews, refer only to Greek and wrote the gospel of Matthew. And then John. Different level entirely. John would be called... Have you heard the phrase, uh, silence is golden? That comes from <clears throat> that comes from this next writing level of the of the Jews. The rest of the story is silence is golden, except in study of Torah, except in study of the Hebrew law. Then silence is not golden, because you debate it and you discuss it and you argue it, and so this is called the Zohar. And Zohar means mystic. Prophetic, symbolic, 
Think of John. You know, you've got over here, you've got Luke talking about shepherds and angels. You've got Matthew. Mark doesn't say anything about the birth of Christ. He's, he starts with John the Baptist preaching. You've got Matthew talking about magi, the three kings. John, when he talks about the birth of Christ, says the Word became flesh. The light that enlightens everyone came into the world. Incredible symbolism. When he, you know what Moses' first public miracle was, right? Moses' first public miracle changed water to blood. Jesus' first public miracle, only John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, skip over it, turning water to wine. And in the New Testament, wine is blood. Jesus is the second Moses. And the symbolism of that act, if you really study John's gospel, you're going to see symbol after symbol after symbol after symbol. When he comes to Peter, remember he, shocking, Jesus gets up from the table, takes off his clothes, except for his undergarment, wraps a towel around his waist, remember, came back and started washing their feet. When he gets to Peter, Peter said, you're going to wash my feet? And Jesus said, what I'm doing now you don't get, but later on you'll understand. And Peter said, you're never going to wash my feet. Ume, double negative in Greek, very strong. You are not going to wash my feet. Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. He's not talking about feet. The very next verse says, all of you are clean except for the one who is a devil, talking about Judas. So symbolism, all the way through John. How many miracles does John have Jesus do? You know, these guys together have Jesus doing about 36 miracles. About three dozen miracles, about three dozen parables. How many miracles in John? Exactly seven, yeah. The number seven to John is so significant. Remember when we studied the number seven in Genesis? The first verse of Genesis has seven words, 28 letters, four times seven. The second verse of Genesis has 14 words, two times seven, and 35 letters, five times seven. In the Hebrew text, if you study Genesis, you can't miss the number seven. It's in there verse after verse after verse. And then it talks about seven days. Revelation, even more. Revelation is seven visions. So in John's Gospel, who's the same author as Revelation, see, prophetic, symbolic, mystic. Revelation is a series of symbols. Revelation is seven visions. John does seven. John has Jesus do seven miracles, public miracles, in his gospel, starting with turning water into wine and ending up at the raising of Lazarus. And each of those is symbolically interpreted in John. So John is unique. John says at the end of his book, many other things Jesus did and said, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life in his name. So John, higher level yet, he's a theologian. He's had an extra generation to think about things. These guys write in the mid to late 60s, he writes in the 90s. Okay, let me stop, see if there's any questions about this or comments. Anything we've talked about so far? We've been here about an hour.
Let's take a little break and come back. And I want to look at the genealogy, just that. We won't stay very long. I'll let you go so you can get home before 9 o'clock. Okay? <laughs> 